turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6, and we'll be in two passages in the Gospel of John. John 6, John 18, John 11, and John 19. the subject, or the sub subject of death. And the subject of death always reminds me of those that I've lost and those that have gone on. Those from this pulpit I have said goodbye from. But it also reminds me of the power of the cross. It reminds me of the promises of Jesus and that Jesus is the only answer for the question of death. You see, everyone comes face to face with death. The question really is just when and how you come to it. This week was my mother's birthday. And being the good son, the best child, <laughs> among many, many of seven, I brought her flowers to her house and surprised her on her birthday and said, happy birthday. I'm going to get more in the will than anybody else. But... <laughs> Now, as we were sitting there talking, and it's her 77th birthday, and she's proud of that, so I can tell you. As we were talking, I told her, I said, we were talking about those that have gone on before us and in our family. I said, you know, Mom, I've come to realize that I come from a long line of people who died. <laughs> Think about it. So do you. In discussion at my mom and I were talking about the difference between Sheridan's, Sheridan's and Wade, my mom's name name is Wade, and I'm actually a Wade more than a Sheridan probably. Sheridan, especially the men, we just get tired and we leave. Sheridan men don't get sick. We just decide one day the party's over and I'm done and I leave. Sheridan, or excuse me, Wade women are the opposite. Wade women all live to be over 100. The problem is, it's somewhere around 90 to 100, they go crazy. My grandma right now is 99. She doesn't know who she is. And I looked at my mom and I said, well, it's nice of you that, you know, you took a jump start on this crazy business and you started when you were 40. <laughs> and she shot right back at me and said, well, that's right around the time you became a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got me. But listen, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the statistics are in. 10 out of 10 people, they die. Death is a reality. There must be an answer to this problem of death today. If you're taking notes, our March 4th order today is this. Jesus is the only answer for eternal life. Jesus is the only answer for eternal life. This is the answer we must share. How much do you have to hate someone not to tell them the truth? How much must you hate your neighbor not to tell them that Jesus is the only answer for eternal life? Jesus is the only answer, is the message of Oakland Woods. Because Jesus is the only answer, is the message of the Bible. It is the message of the cross. It is the message of Easter. And it is the reason for the resurrection. 
See, when it comes to death, I need more than philosophy. I need more than ideas, I need more than a guess. When it comes to the subject of death, I, well, I need someone who's conquered it. If you're taking, taking notes, Jesus has conquered the sting of death. Jesus has conquered the sting of death. In 1 Corinthians 15, 55, it says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. In verse 57, but thanks be to God, which giveth us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. At every graveside, I tell the same simple story when I make reference to this passage. And I tell the story of a little girl who was with her daddy. And they were out in a nice, beautiful summer day, driving in the country with the windows down. The little girl was in the back, and as they were driving, a bee flew into the car. And the little girl was deathly allergic to bees, and she began to sing and scream and shout, Daddy, Daddy, there's a bee in the car, there's a bee in the car. If he stings me, I'll die. And the father, being like a father could only do, kept right on driving, looked back, and with one hand grabbed hold of that bee and held that bee for a moment, and then let the bee go. And the little girl says, Daddy, Daddy, why did you let the bee go? If he stings me, I'll die. And that father holds up his great big hand with a stinger stuck right in the middle and says, oh, don't worry, sweetheart. He can't hurt you anymore. For the believer in Jesus Christ, Jesus holds up his nail-scarred hand and says, oh, don't worry about death anymore. He can't hurt you anymore. The sting has been removed. Jesus also conquered the question of eternity. In 1 John 5, 13, the question of eternity, he says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Jesus also conquered the grip of the grave. In Luke chapter 5, there he is, this reference, the angels talking to these ladies at his grave say this, why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Amen? Amen. The Son of Man must be delivered unto the hands of sinful men and be crucified the third day and rise again. You see, it is Jesus who has conquered the sting of death. It is Jesus who has conquered the question of eternity. It is Jesus who has conquered the grip of the grave. And when I come to all three of these things, and I realize this very quickly, that Muhammad did not conquer the grave. Muhammad never took out the grave, and Muhammad did not come back after he died. It was Buddha, no, it was not Buddha who erased the pain of death. And it is not religion that constantly tells you, if you're good enough, then maybe you could go to heaven. If you're good enough, then maybe at the end, if your good outweighs your bad. It is religion that tells you that lie. Religion cannot get you to heaven. It cannot release the grip of the grave. It is only Jesus who takes the sting of death away. It is only Jesus who answers the question of eternity. And it is only Jesus who removes the grip of the grave from you. In March, the greatest event, as we march towards the greatest event in human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is our duty, it is our marching orders to tell the world that Jesus is the only answer. In March chapter 6, there's an amazing chapter that we've already looked at before. Jesus is foreshadowing his crucifixion. It's sort of a combination of the last two messages today come together. After Jesus, we looked at two weeks ago, teaches a hard truth about his coming death and resurrection. 
Many will leave and say, this is too difficult to hear and to understand. It is too difficult to follow. Jesus will turn to his disciples and ask the question, well, he'll ask the question that many of your family members have asked you. Why do you follow Jesus? He'll ask his disciples that remain, why are you following me? In verse 67, follow along with me. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, will ye also go away? Are you going to leave and run when things get difficult with me too? In verse 68, then Simon Peter. Last week we saw Peter's mistake, but today look at this. Peter answered to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe that thou art sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. As many mistakes that Peter has made and makes like last week as we saw, Peter nails it today. He says basically to Jesus, if you'll allow me to paraphrase, where else can we go? You are the only answer. If times get difficult, I'm still going to follow you because only you have the answer for the grave. If I don't understand what you're doing, only you, I'm still going to follow you because only you have the answer for eternity. Where else can we go, Lord, because you alone are God? Let me just say this to you, and I hope you understand, and if I need to talk with you later, I'd be glad to. You do not need to believe in Noah's Ark to be real to go to heaven. I personally do. I believe every word in the Bible is true. But you don't need to believe that Noah's Ark is real. You don't even need to believe that David and Goliath actually fought. You don't need to believe any of the Old Testament stories, to be perfectly honest. You don't need to believe that Adam and Eve were real people, and I personally believe they were. What you need to believe, though, is that you are a sinner separated from God, and that God loves you so much he sent Jesus, his son, to be born of a virgin, who lived 33 sinless years and died on purpose and gave up his life on a cruel Roman cross, the, the event that we call Easter, to die for you and to prove he was God, to prove what he did was true. He conquered the grave and rose on the third day. That and that alone is all you need to believe to go to heaven. Now, if you know Christ is your personal Savior, you'll begin to believe the rest of it also. And I say to you today, only Jesus has the answer because he's God. Amen? Jesus is the only answer. I'm going to give you three things. Turn over to John 18. John 18 is we look at three things today. John 18 and John 11. Jesus is only answer number one because of the power of his glory. He's the only answer because of the power of his glory. In John 18, we go to the garden, that famous scene inside the garden. Judas is leading a group to betray Jesus. If you've been in Sunday school long enough, you know the story. He's leading a group to betray Jesus, and it's not Judas I want to focus on. It's not even the soldiers, really, I want to focus on. But it is the power and glory of Jesus I want you to see slightly revealed. Here it is in verse 3. Then Judas, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, come thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. They are loaded with weapons to get Jesus. And Jesus, therefore, knowing all things, by the way, he knew all things because he was God. Only God knows all things. God knows your thoughts. You don't have to pray out loud. God can hear your thoughts. Let me remind you that Satan does not know all things. Uh, maybe teenage boys think they know all things. But not even Satan knows all things. Only God knows all things. In verse 4, 
what should come upon him, and went forth and said unto them, Whom seek thee? And they answered, this is the mob, this is the group with the swords and the torches, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said unto them, listen to what he says, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. That phrase, I am, maybe falls on deaf ears in our culture. But that phrase, I am, goes back to Moses. When Moses asked God, when they ask who I'm speaking and what should I say, and God tells Moses, tell them, I am has sent you. And Jesus will use that phrase repeatedly, and he'll say, I am the way. He'll say that I am the truth, I am the resurrection. And one time when the Pharisees confront him, that's his response for him. He says, I am. And by saying, I am, he is saying, I am God. Someone might say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Really? The Pharisees thought he did, and that's why they picked up stones to stone him. He says this, I am. This is a big deal. This is Jesus revealing his deity. Look at verse 6. Pastor Steve, I don't know if it's that big a deal. Okay, well, look at verse 6. As soon then as he has said unto them, what? I am. They went backwards and they fell to the ground. Jesus here in this passage has revealed a small taste of his deity. A small amount that he is the Lamb of God. He reveals here in this simple statement to this group that he is God. It is not his boldness, it is not his confidence that falls, makes these soldiers, these hardened men with swords and weapons, it is not that that makes him fall down. It is that here that Jesus pulls back the curtain on a very small part of his deity and his purpose. And when that glory is revealed, it knocks these men down to the ground. Now I would like to draw your attention to something, though. <clears throat> Notice something. They do not fall forward. Instead of falling forward in worship, no, no, no. They fall backwards in fear. This is your two opportunities. This is the two opportunities to respond to Jesus. The message of the cross, a glimpse of his deity. You only have two possible options. Number one, you can fall forward and worship him as Savior. Many of you here have chosen to make that your choice. Or number two, you can fall backwards in fear as a judge. You see, these men were given a small taste of what, well, of what John the Revelator, if you'd like to put side notes in your Bible next to verse 6, put Revelation 1.17. <clears throat> because John the Revelator, when he gets a glimpse of Jesus and sees Jesus, what does he do? And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And when he had laid hands upon me, said unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and is dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And what does he say? I and I alone have the keys of hell and death. You see, John was seeing the revelation, the glory, and the power of Jesus. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, he falls forward on his face, and he worships him like a dead man. But those that do not know him, when that power and glory is revealed, they fall backwards in fear as a judge. Let me say this to you. As much as I love the idea that one day, like the Apostle Paul says, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, I love the idea that I will have that presence of Jesus to fall forward on my face at his feet, see the pucks, the scars, and the holes in his feet, and I will be given the opportunity to worship my Lord and Savior. 
That is an amazing idea and concept that blows my mind away. But it also brings me to tears and it burdens my heart for the fact that many people, when they are exposed to the glory of God, will be pushed back and will be removed from his presence in a place that Jesus called hell. My friend, I hope that this passage and this idea stirs up emotions of joy in you. But I hope it also stirs up some emotions of grief and pushes you to tell your grandson about Jesus and pushes you to tell your neighbor because it will be a glorious day that I get to see my Savior face to face and I get to confess that he is Lord. Oh, but the end of Revelation tells of another day. Jesus himself says on those days he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. You see, the glory of God gives you two options. You're here today and you've chosen option one to fall forward. So yeah. But leave today also with a burden for those who have not yet. Jesus is the only answer in John 11 now. Turn over to John 11. He's the only answer because number two, because of the authority of his word. The authority of his word. We go to a graveyard scene, a famous graveyard scene in John 11. And if you've been in church, you know the scene and the setting. Uh, one of Jesus' good friends, Lazarus, has died. Jesus, on purpose, did not go and heal him. He knew he was sick unto death. And Jesus waits. In fact, he waits until three days after his good friend Lazarus has died. Do you see the foreshadowing? In fact, this is just days before Jesus himself will die on a cross and raise on the third day. Jesus is doing this on purpose, but he comes to this famous graveyard scene. And by the way, every time I go to a graveyard, I think of this hot event. Because if you're here and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, one day if you die, listen, one day the Bible says Jesus is going to return and the graves are going to be open. Amen? Every time I do a graveside service, I always think, what a great illustration this will be if it happens right now. I, the irony and the mean-spirited little kid in me hopes that my day comes when I die and they put me in that grave. As soon as I hit the bottom, I get to go at the rapture and I get out just to freak a lot of people out. Just go, boom, boom, that would be great. But in this graveyard scene, Jesus comes to his friend Lazarus and he says this in verse 43. When he had thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice. Listen, Jesus was an old-school Baptist preacher. Mm -hmm. Pastor Steve, sometimes you get emotional. I know, I don't plan it. But so did Jesus. And when he said, get ready, I'm going to say it probably how Jesus said it, okay? Get ready. All right, you ready? One, two, three. Lazarus! Come forth! Now, I believe, but I have no verse to back it up. I believe he had to say, Lazarus. Because there at that graveyard, if he had just simply said, come forth, everyone would have been But he says, Lazarus, come forth. And what happens? Well, he that was dead, dead for three days, came forth, bound hand and foot, wrapped up in the grave clothes. And his face was bound with a napkin. And Jesus said, loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary had seen the things which Jesus did and believed him. Think about this. Just words. Jesus doesn't touch Lazarus. Lazarus is behind a, a stone. He's bound up. He doesn't do anything, but he just says words. It is with just words the Bible tells us that God spoke into existence this universe. Just words Jesus uses, the power of his words, just words he uses to raise a man that was dead for three days. The authority of his words. 
Can I say two things about his authority? Number one, his authority does not require my faith. Many are telling and saying that just God will do something in your life only if you have the faith for him to do it. God will heal you only if you have the faith to do it. May I ask you this very simple question? What faith did Lazarus have at this moment? He had none. Lazarus was dead. Did Lazarus ask to be raised? And by the way, for some of you, when I think about this, it's never recorded that Lazarus told what happened to him during those three days. It's never recorded that Lazarus wrote a book and created a movie. Three days in Hades, you know? Have you ever done anything like that? But what this is, this is the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty is a theological word. But what it basically means is the unlimited power of God. It means this. God can do whatever he chooses to do. Now let me just stop for just one second so I can clarify something. God can't do everything. God can't go against his word. God promised not to destroy this world with water. God will not destroy this world with water. He will destroy it with fire. God can't unsave me. God can't stop loving me. God can't stop forgiving me. Amen? Amen. But the sovereignty of God is God choosing to work however he wants to. It is a very difficult passage, Ron. It is a very difficult passage when we apply this concept to our own life. That God is sovereign and he gets to choose and pick all of these things. And why he does it? Well, anyone who tells you why he does it is lying. I do not know why some people get sick and others don't. But I know the psalmist in Psalm 135, 6 says this. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth. In the seas and all deeps. I will confess that there are many times that I've yelled at God. I've stood out here in this field on, on my praying point with me and God. It's a good idea to do it in July, but in January it becomes cold. I find my prayers get shorter when it's 12 degrees. But I will confess that many times I've stood out there and said, God, this isn't right. It's not fair that this person left us. I like this person. Lord, there's a list of at least 15 people in our church I wish you would take. No, no, no. That's just between me and God. But I don't understand everything that God does. But God is sovereign. And sometimes I just have to simply say, by faith, I accept what you've done. Dr. John Piper said this. He is sovereign over the whole world and everything that happens in it. He is never hapless, never frustrated, never at a loss. And in Christ, God's awesome, sovereign principle is, is, is the place we feel the most reverent, the most secure, the most free. Mm -hmm. My response to the sovereignty of God is not to understand it. My response to the sovereignty of God is to fall on my face and worship him. My response is to submit. My response is to say, you are still God. Number two, his authority does not rest on my pleasure. Because everybody knows that when God is working, everything is perfect in your life, right? God never brings difficult things into your life. When I was a student pastor, we would go over to Union Grove, Wisconsin, to a uh, ministry called Shepherd's Home. Great place. They have over 200 mentally challenged between 18 and up uh, adults. Uh, 200 of them from different levels of mental disability. One of the gentlemen there was an uh, Assembly of God preacher. And what had happened, uh, he had a surgical procedure done, 
and they made a mistake with the oxygen, and he lost oxygen to his brain. And it gave him a, well, it gave him a disability. And so he wasn't quite the same after the procedure, and so he was living there at Shepherd's Home, a Christian group. He was living at Shepherd's Home, and one day we would go there during March or so, during the spring break, and we would work with them and stuff. And one day we were walking out of the place where they did their work, and uh, this gentleman is a former Pentecostal preacher. He walks out, and it's April, you know. It's supposed to be nice, but in Wisconsin, it's just a cold year. And it was like 20 degrees, and he walks out, and he puts on his jacket, and he goes, ah, bless God, God wants us to freeze today. And I thought, what an amazing truth. Because how many times do we turn on God and say, God, I should have no difficulty as a follower of you. God is a child of God. Everything should be perfect in my life. That man in a defunct mental state was able to see clearer than most believers and recognize the sovereignty of God and that God has not put us on this planet to make us happy. You are fallen mistaken to a pagan culture idea that God wants you to have your best life now. That is not your purpose on this planet. If you are looking for purpose, your purpose is to fall on your face and worship God. Your purpose is to tell other people so that they do not have to fall backwards out of the presence of God. That is your purpose. God is not here looking for your faith. God is not here trying to make your life easier. God is sovereign in how he works, he works. My job today is to simply say, praise God, I will freeze if you want me to freeze. His authority is not about my pleasure. But instead of letting God tell us what to do, we like to tell God what to do. Job will say, though he slay me, I will follow. You are the only answer. Where else can I go, God? Where else can I go, Jesus? Because you're the only answer. And lastly, number three. Turn over to John 19. John 19. Jesus is the only answer because the completion of his actions. The completions of his actions. One verse, John 19.30. There he is, our Lord and Savior, naked on a cross, innocent, beaten, bloody. I'd like to point out that they did not kill him. He gave up his life willingly. But on John 19.30, there he is, the last words before his death on the cross. And when Jesus had received the vinegar, he said this, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. There on the cross, the Son of God, born of a virgin, a sinless human being who was fully God and fully human, died for your sin and mine. The entire point of the Old Testament was to foreshadow the point to this event. The entire point of the New Testament is to look back and talk about and praise and worship for this event. There on the cross, he says those simple words, it is finished. The plan of God was complete. Before I close, may I ask you this simple question? Do you know him as the only answer? Do you know him as the only answer? Listen, when someone can call their own shot and predict and pull off their own death, burial, and resurrection, that is someone you should listen to.
My clothes, what I'd like to do today, is unusual. So Solomon, you ready? Strong, quick, Greg? I would like to close with four minutes of a song. I had planned this for weeks. And then my wife informed me on Friday night, we're going out with some people, we're going to see this song in a movie. And they have made a movie out of this song. I did not know this, planning this. The Sovereignty of God, there you go. It is a beautiful song entitled, I Can Only Imagine. Now, what I would like you to do is enjoy the song, the words will be on the screen, and you have one or two options really what you can do. If you would like to think of somebody who's gone on before, feel free to do that. that that's, that's an option. But the main focus, what I would really like you to do, and I'm not going to tell you what to do, but what I would really like you to do is instead of focusing on those that have gone on before, I'd like you to realize what a glorious day it would be for you. And what our Lord and Savior did on the cross for us. And how amazing it is that he, in while we were yet sinners, still loved us. So we're not going to, we're going to do our invitation. Don't worry. I'm not going to give you any rules and how you can respond. If you would like to come forward and use a step, you kneel. if you would like to kneel at your seat, Feel free to kneel at your seat. There is no rules to how you respond. If you'd like to bow your head, do that. In the movie theater, as they did the movie, they came to this. At the end, I wanted to just stand up and shout. But I would suggest this to you, that instead of doing something that draws attention to you, you would allow God to have the glory in that moment. So as the song plays right there at your seat, if you'd like to bow your head, I know you're bowing. If you'd like to raise your hand, feel free to raise your hand. If you'd like to come forward and use a step, whatever you would feel more comfortable doing, you still do it. But I'd like you to hear this song and realize the power, the glory, the sovereignty of Jesus, and the completion of his cross in one day when we get to see him face to face. Gentlemen.
Thank you, Lord, for that change. 